0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, we're going to focus in on the intersection of technology, media, and the COVID-19 pandemic. We've got a jumbo show with two segments. First, a discussion with Alexis Madrigal, a staff writer at The Atlantic, co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project, and the author of Powering the Dream, the History and Promise of Green Technology, on the occasion of the one-year anniversary of the COVID Tracking Project, and also a turning point for it. Today, Sunday, March 7th, marks the end of the project's daily data collection. And then... We'll listen in on a panel discussion on contact tracing technologies, privacy, and the challenges we face in developing and implementing such systems in an emergency. I was one of the COVID Tracking Project's hundreds of volunteers, so it was great to talk to Alexis at this turning point in its history. Here's Alexis.
2: I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm uh, one of the co-founders and co-leads of the COVID Tracking Project. We began collecting data as a project on March 7th, which was 365 days before Sunday. And in December, as we started looking out at the landscape for COVID, vaccinations, the federal data systems, the state data systems, I think we realized a couple of things. One is the federal data had gotten a lot, lot better. And from the very beginning, we had always said, well, if the feds can sort of provide what people are looking for, then we should use that data. Like it's better to have a national government do this than to have a fundamentally impossible task occur, which is stitching together 56 jurisdictions, data sets, each of which sort of function like their own national government. So you have to do kind of all this investigation on how their individual data sets work. And then you get those quilt patches and then you stitch it all together, right? And that's not a great way of creating a data set relative to what the federal government can do. It does, however, provide you with an enormous amount of understanding about the the reality of data pipelines from the local level on up. And we realized that as long as we were collecting data, we couldn't really focus as much as we wanted to on an accountability basis on those things, on the problems of these data pipelines. We could point them out, but we just so much energy I mean just so much energy has to go into collecting the data. And, and the final thing is we also realized that you know this is a big operation now. It started as a small volunteer thing, but there's 30 staffers, there's you know 300 volunteers still in the thing, still flowing through and you have to if you're going to keep doing it you have to keep flowing volunteers through. You have to there's a whole bunch of things you need to do, which means you know a pretty substantial amount of money per month, which means if you're really going to go long and you're also would then have to track vaccines and all these other things. Now you're talking like, you know, you need to raise millions of dollars. I mean, we've already, but when it's all said and done, we'll probably have raised close to $2 million. But you're talking like, now you got to raise a lot more. You got to raise that again in an an era of declining interest with the feds having brought on most of what was uh, important and necessary and able to do it in better ways in, in some cases. And we had other work that we wanted to turn the research brains on. So, When we added all that up, it was a really hard decision to make in December because cases were rising really fast, but we basically began the planning process knowing that we'd announce it in in February. And so that's what's what's going on. We're going to end data collection. We're going to transition people for a few months to working on major accountability reports and projects. And then we're going to uh, officially wind the project down and, and archive it in a really thoughtful and hopefully kind of groundbreaking way because so much of what we've done is on Slack and there's actually never been a Slack put into an archive in this country that any archivist can tell me about. So um, it's pretty exciting that way.
1: This entire project, to some extent, has been an accountability project, hasn't it? Oh, 100%. I
2: mean, I think like, you know, on an individual state level, having people who really understood what was going on with their data shook out dozens and dozens of data sets from states, as well as improvements as well as just kind of the, the constant pressure working in concert with local journalists who also had access to other kinds of you know sourcing and and ways of understanding what was going on at the state and local level. I just think what we could do was kind of point out like, hey, actually what's going on in Ohio is pretty weird right now. What's going on in Virginia is pretty weird right now. And then reporters in those places could could sort of take that lead and and start running with it, knowing that whatever their state health department was saying about this is just our business as usual. Well, it's not because there's 55 other jurisdictions that aren't doing it that way. And I think that turned out to be uh, a very powerful sort of network journalism force. Couldn't do it all on our own, not actually very interesting for our national audience to find out what's going on in you know, uh, Virginia death accounting. But for local and state reporters, it's that is a really good and big story. And I feel like something we've been able to to
1: bring to people. Um, Did you see a lot of examples of uh, states or other jurisdictions changing the way they were doing data collection as a result of what the COVID tracking project required? Yeah.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. We um, we have, I don't know, several dozen examples of that, um, of states, you know, reporting in a slightly different way that made them more comparable with other states or releasing time series, which, you know, for people who aren't familiar, you know, just data, data going back and. In time. So it's not just today's numbers, but it's all the numbers going back. States unlumping things that they had lumped together, like antigen tests. And, you know, we had a grading system um, that we put together for long term care facility um, data, race and ethnicity data, as well as what we call the TACO data set testing and outcomes. They, that, those grades showed like tremendous improvement in reporting by the states. It's still like imperfect, particularly around race and ethnicity. Um, as well as um, long-term care facilities. But there really was a lot, a lot of movement by states on um, improving the way that they reported things to make them more transparent, better defined, keeping like with like, and not like mixing things that shouldn't have been mixed. I I think the area that has probably been the weirdest recently, I mean, testing has been weird throughout, but the area that's been weirdest recently has been uh, on death accounting, as different places have really struggled to strike a balance between reporting comprehensively and reporting quickly. And as states, many states tried to report more comprehensively, checking death certificates and things like that, it just meant that we've seen big backlogs get dumped after, way after the fact. And I think the reason that that's bad is that one of the few things we know that really moves public behavior based on some studies we've seen is uh, when people know people are dying. There's been so much misinformation about cases and hospitalizations and other things that deaths are really the only thing that kind of move people quickly. And so if you're shaving the peak of most outbreaks because a bunch of deaths are gonna be reported 30 or 45 or 60 days after the fact, then you're actually keeping some of the most important public health information um, from reaching the public. And I don't think in most cases, I don't think it's actually nefarious. I think it's a it's just that when a surge comes, so many people die that the, the people who look at death certificates get overwhelmed. And um, that is yet another indication of how serious COVID has been that like it literally has overwhelmed our death reporting infrastructure. Um, and we need to think
1: about that for the future. So I, I feel like I've seen that myself uh, observing the, the numbers very closely in the community where I grew up, um, where they are now seeing, you know, backlogs of deaths uh, being added to the rolls. You know, it, it is sort of shocking. Now, after the fact, you know, tests are, our uh, sort of positive rate is back down, um, new, new cases are back down, uh, but the deaths are climbing, you know, precipitously. And I agree, you know, had folks known, um, it might have changed behaviors earlier on. I would I would also lump in uh, school data with that. There seems to be a, a great variance across the country and across school districts in terms of what school districts are providing to the community or not.
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think across the board, I think the experiment of federalism here (laughs) in the United States. Uh, So many of these problems come down to the fact that like we really do, we have a very quite powerful uh, national government that controls a lot of important purse strings. But then we have all these other places that function like their own government, particularly now that a lot of the informal structures of power have broken down. Like for example, the CDC is, like authority with, with governors to hold them in line. That's clearly broken down as we've seen from states like Mississippi and Texas deciding to fully reopen or really Florida staying kind of open through the whole thing and doing okay. You know, a lot of states following the line of the federal government is kind of like Senate procedural stuff. Like it's just kind of was dependent on, well, of course we do it because we're all part of the same country. But like, as soon as that starts to break down, it turns out, States can do a lot of things. And, you know, I mean, that's not only a phenomenon uh, of the, of the left. I mean, you can look at marijuana legalization or other things that, you know, sanctuary cities, I mean, things that are much more aligned with my own personal politics where I think like, yeah, good, you know, buck the federal government on this, you know, but when you look at it in a public health context, you go like, geez, like we knew one thing going into this, you couldn't really fight the pandemic on a state by state basis. And when, And yet we were definitely going to fight the pandemic on a state by state basis. And in fact, we lost. And that was clear. I mean, I had that realization on a run in early April that that's how we were going to do it in this country. We wouldn't do a hard lockdown or any other really like serious non-pharmaceutical interventions all at once, all in the country to really like get our numbers down the way that a lot of European countries did. Instead, we were going to do this messy thing. That ended up with you know our outbreak and our excess deaths in the United States never getting back down to baseline levels in the way that it did other places.
1: One of the things that we talk about uh, a lot in this podcast is the general relationship between technology, you know, media, democracy, the public sphere. I don't want to put too much on you, but you know, my understanding of what you've written about in the past and your curiosities, I kind of read into the existence of the COVID tracking project and your role in it as also being a product of your set of curiosities around those questions. So I guess I might give you an impossible question just to zoom out. And when you think about sort of the information sphere, the public sphere in America, what has the public COVID tracking project taught you about that? I mean, I, to me, it's, a, it's an amazing prism to look at these questions through wow, uh, how, you. how people learn things, how, pe- how we come to consensus, facts versus you know, opinion. All those things are kind of bound up in it.
2: Yeah, I I think I'd say a couple things about that, and I think it is true that this obviously Aaron cassay too, you know, who's been co-leader through majority of this project with me, also has a lot of thoughts about those exact same issues. Which you know, I feel like we've mind melded, and and that has directed this sort of direction we're pointing in a lot of the time. But here's here's the, here's the answer I would. I would give for myself and without necessarily wrapping Aaron into my own bad ideas. I think that journalism as a field is like incredibly blinded. Journalists tend to think of whatever they're doing as correct because they see journalism as producing like a vital public good. That is a complex thing our field is like extremely under theorized as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to thinking about what we do and the value of it, because there are so many fields that are dedicated to producing knowledge. And yet we act like we have exclusive access to that so often. And like, what is our methodology? You know, I I think it's a really interesting question to ask, like the sort of scientism of like objectivity and journalism was true that was born out of a broader phenomenon across the, you know, so-called social sciences. And in a lot of cases, it's been really rigorously debated and even fallen by the wayside, like particularly in the realm of sociology from that era, the idea of objectivity has undergone like a a huge transformation. It doesn't mean that people don't use data. It doesn't mean that people aren't rigorous. It just means that saying I am the objective one and then doing whatever you're going to do is in fact not a scientific method. <laughs> so that that said, that's a preamble about the state of the field. I think the reason that COVID Tracking Project worked well and had a different kind of authority from other journalistic things that were going on around COVID was that it wasn't only journalism. It was hybridized with these other fields of science communication and and data science. Because of that, It could actually draw on other ways of thinking about data, other ways of thinking about communicating with people, other ways of thinking about the relationship between government and the media or like government and and journalism aside from like we publish a story that identifies a problem and then nothing ever happens. Like we publish stories that identify the problems and then oftentimes we could fix them. You know, we worked directly with um, states and with the federal government to improve their data quality. That's kind of outside the normal boundaries of a, a journalistic project. But when it comes to providing data, that's totally normal. In fact, like it would be insane not to do that, knowing that these governments have to have to produce this data. Sometimes, you know, most of the time it was through more conventional journalistic means, like saying, hey, this is a problem, guys. You could fix it if you did this. Hey, this is a problem. Uh, and other times it was making sure that what they were putting out was, um, was in fact high quality using our data sets to, to check across. I think that, you know, the big zoom out though on all of that is just like the form that rigorous sort of observation and like publication take don't have to be the way that we have done it so far. Which are largely within the forms that were established in the 20th century. Like I, I think there is some other stuff that can be done that's like takes this incredible set of tools that journalists have developed and and pushes them around into these other fields. Because I do think that journalism in the pandemic has been extremely important. Um, extremely powerful, a lot of different levels. We're just a lot faster than everybody else. That's one thing people forget. We're like really fast. Journalists are um, at finding information and at using any tool to hand, like kind of the mixed martial arts of knowledge generation. You know, we don't actually have expertise. And so we have to go figure it out a lot of the time. And I think that if you look at a lot of projects that were really successful, they, they had some, you know, one of the chemicals in, in their um, soup was the journalism, but not always exclusively that. And I think that's a, a big thing to point out.
1: I make a connection in my head between the COVID tracking project and some other projects that I witnessed happen in 2020 that were also unique collaborations between researchers, journalists, and civil society. Um, in some cases that were focused on, on the election and trying to drive out disinformation around the 2020 election. So you had things like the Electric Integrity Partnership, the Disinformation, uh, Defense League, other groups that were essentially ad hoc, uh, made up of a variety of different types of, of civil society actors who came together to kind of shore up something, confront disinformation on the one hand, collect information on the other, and try to propagate that information. And part of me, the, the optimistic part of me looks at it all and goes, you know, these are the helpers. These are the the kind of like mutual aid people of the information sphere who are solving uh, the problem that needs to be solved in the moment. But then the glass half full person looks at it, part of me says, wow, like this country is so chock full of lies and disinformation and conspiracy theories and nonsense and lack of proper funding for institutions to create or collect this information that, you know, you, you could be pessimistic about it. I don't know. I don't know if that's a, if you see that connection or if, if that. Uh... Yeah, no, no, no. I, I see it. I see the connection. I think
2: that there is a problem in the current world where our institutions don't like map pretty imperfectly onto what's happening in the digital sphere you need like this weird set of skills in order to sort of like match up, you know, not to, I know sports metaphors can be alienating for people, but it's sort of like you're playing against a really weird team and you need like, you know, they don't play with a center and they've got like no point guard and you're like, how do we play against these guys? You know? And I think what a lot of the um, uh, I think what a lot of these pop-up kind of institutions are doing is sort of like looking at, the team that we're sort of playing against, the sort of, you know the, the problem set that's out there, and saying like, listen, there's no existing institution that has all these things inside of it and that can pivot resources in this way. So let's just make up that the the institution that needs to exist here. You know, we made the decision that COVID tracking project actually couldn't be fully institutionalized in that way and continue in perpetuity. I think a lot of those other projects will also probably wane you're kind of built for a particular moment you know maybe that's okay you know I mean one of the things that I I, one of our big um, supporters and actually one of the most brilliant thinkers about the project and uh, it's been a guy named Evan Tikovsky at the Rockefeller Foundation data scientist there and you know I I think one of his takeaways to just borrow his line is basically like that actually these journalistic kind of pop-up problems are probably necessary in emergency times. And I, and I think that may be right. Like you actually can't build normal times institutions that function exactly right in the context of an emergency. You could build some emergency preparedness that would have worked better. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do. Don't get me wrong, but there's probably always going to be these gaps that like require the bucket brigades to come in and fight the fire, you know, because there'll always be, you could never design for, the disaster scenario where you'd have enough fire fighters in order to fight the fires, right? You need to have something that fills that gap. That's, you know, so we're one thing we're talking about is maybe having a convening where we bring in people who might be inclined to keep a hand in, not having an active running organization, but in the case of a future pandemic, you'd be able to like bring some people back in or a future kind of public health emergency of some kind who've had some experience doing this emergency work and, you know, and do it again.
1: So, I mean, I've, I've certainly learned a lot just watching the model unfold. And I think it's interesting, the the idea of the bucket brigade. Um, but, you know, it's, it's it's incredible that we had this moment where we needed a bucket brigade for a pandemic and a bucket brigade literally for our democracy um, at the same time. And I, I don't know, I can't help but see a connection between those two things that, um, yeah you know, there's something broken on both sides. Um, I'd like to, I, again, it's kind of like I see it both ways. I, I'm both optimistic about it and I, I, definitely see the helpers and imagine that, you know, we, we've we got through this thing. Uh, on the other hand, you know, how many 700,000 dead by summer. Um, mm-hmm. Still profound threat to our democracy more generally. So I don't know. It's, it's, we may not know how the story ends quite yet.
2: Yeah. I mean, and clearly the one thing that unites both of those things is like the, particularly at the, well, the democracy is broken at a lot of different levels. I mean, at the federal level, you know, it's just increasingly uh, non-democratic, you know, I mean, it's just increasingly uh, the Senate in particular, uh, as well as like all the gerrymandering of like house seats. And then you have like similar problems occurring in a lot of, uh, a lot of states, state houses with, you know, this party system, the structures that actually maintained it are clearly, going through some really brutal times and need to either be re-strengthened and a lot of the informal things that had previously, you know, kept power more balanced, uh, be put back into place or kind of tear it up. I mean, I just don't, me personally, I don't know how you get to a better America without redesigning the Senate entirely. It doesn't make any sense to have, you know, a tiny percentage of the population control a huge part of this body you know it's only going to get
1: more that way over time <laughs> unless urbanization reverses which it hasn't pretty much anywhere so that, yeah yeah that gets back to that point you're making about the formations on the field you know and the the kind of game where the game dynamics of this um yep. you know how, how how we're dealing with it and yeah i mean i'm also kind of left with that feeling that there's there's some fundamental change that has to happen about the game dynamics of democracy, how we organize our institutions and our, our effort here. Well, you know, I mean, any way you want to look at it, like
2: GDP share population, all those things, the Senate is just so out of whack and is projected to just get out of whack forever. (laughs) It's like, we're not moving back to an agrarian economy unless the country collapses, you know? It's just, to me, that is really like a brutal reality right now. That not only do you have that like on a vote share kind of uh, basis kind of problem, but then the actual rules of the Senate are also, you know, really tilted in in favor of the minority. And we know that those things really trace their roots back also to really slave power. That's what the Atlanta called it back in the day Uh, was like the power of the slave holding southern planters who essentially designed this system. And it's tough. That's tough. I mean, it's, it's bad all down the line. Um, And yet you have a lot of people who worship the, the, that as a, as a sacred document, you know, and I can understand why, you know, I mean, like some people really, really believe in the founding documents of the United States as as something very special as opposed to, you know, the means to functional
1: government, just how I see it. At the early stage of the pandemic, one of the things people were most excited about was contact tracing. And tech companies kind of came out with these apps and there were, you know, uh, lots of enthusiasm from Silicon Valley about, you know, the Apple and the Google um, approaches to these things. Has it had any real effect has it played a substantial role And um, I don't know, any kind of comment on that or sense of it? You know, kind of thinking about tech as a part of those set of institutions that have played a role in this.
2: Yeah, it didn't really do much, did it? <laughs> I mean, I think it's like a, it really was one of those things that immediately people were like, oh yeah, this is, you know, your phone knows where you are and it would know if you were near an infected person and if there was an alert and then you get a thing and get tested like see, in some theoretical realm. It all made so much sense. And then in reality, I don't think there was actually that much interest from the companies after the initial period. They were worried about other things. Maybe the data that was available wasn't actually precise enough to make that work. And I think that oftentimes this happens actually, you know, there's because people in a lot of different parts of the privacy conversation want to paint the big technology companies as having really great data that tech companies, that's what they are trafficking on and the privacy advocates because it makes the argument scarier. uh, I think people sometimes overestimate how good the stuff actually is. I think, you know, when you look into Facebook ad targeting or you look at, um, yeah, you look at the location data that's available, it's like fine for some things, you know um, but it's actually the precision there and particularly when you start thinking about it in terms of the precision necessary to do contract tracing I mean, it wasn't there or maybe, you know, I mean, to this, to this day, I'm not exactly sure why it didn't fully, why it just kind of never got off the ground. I'm sure though, that at least some piece of it is that a lot of tech people just lost interest in the pandemic immediately. Like they were there for like the startup phase. And I mean, we saw it in our project, tons of tech people in the first two months. As soon as they saw that a bunch of the project was going to be grinding it out with state and local public health departments, not interested. (laughs) That's fascinating. You know, and it's, you know, you look at, I mean, you look at the gender ratio of of the project too, totally flipped, which is great in a lot of ways, but I think it says something about the sort of mindset of a lot of people who go into tech when they find out that they can't actually fix it with code alone. A lot of people are like, well is this really the best place for my talents then? And they're off to something else.
1: I applaud the COVID tracking project for having such an interest in drilling into the the race disparity.
2: You know, I think the basic thing we learned is that, you know, COVID like many other things is going to hit the worst off people in society. If you have a society structured by racial hierarchy, then a lot of the time at the bottom are going to be black people. Um, and they're going to be hit artists. They're going to live in, Denser housing arrangements um, have less access to testing and healthcare, and many other things. And you have, you know, my own folks, Mexican people in LA, who have a kind of similar social positioning there and experienced, you know, some really brutal um, conditions in in California here as well. Um, And it's it's tough. The fact that we have seen in sort of raw terms anywhere where there are more black or Mexican people dying than white people is, uh, you know, proportional to their, uh, to the population is pretty wild, because there's just so many more old white people. And, So one of the great things about our data set is that we were able to collect it from the beginning right away. And so you can kind of see a lot and we were able to drive a lot more race and ethnicity data out of states, which I don't know that they would have done it necessarily um, without the pressure um, that Ibram's team, uh, Ibram Kendi's team and and CTP folks were able to provide. But the downside is we can't do the age adjustment because we don't have the sort of line level that Um, the federal government does. And when you do that age adjustment, you actually see that the risk is substantially higher than it even shows up in our data for people of color because, you know, if you're because of that age um, and race and ethnicity sort of intersection, you know, I I think that it really points out the systemic problems of even just gathering healthcare data about people of color. And hopefully some of the fixes that come down as a result of the pandemic will directly address those issues in the healthcare system.
1: Any personal reflections on this, points mm-hmm. of meaning in this project, um, things that you'll take from it for Alexis? You know,
2: I do think this project really really changed me um, and not just because it wore me wore me down to a nub. Um, I also think that for me it really became like, wow, what a powerful thing to produce a community that itself has productive capacity you know, we, we talk about community all the time. And we, you know, we talk about audiences and all these kinds of ways of talking about groups of people, but to see what a, a, a real supportive community can do and what kind of productive, it can develop capacities that no other organization can, you know? I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing thing to be like, we can get hundreds of people to come back week after week because this community is a supportive and B has purpose. And so for me, I do think that like, for the future, for me, in my career, I think I will want to try and do that again. Like how do you create organizations that can produce that community, which then actually has real productive capacity. I don't just mean is like willing to subscribe to your magazine or like willing to listen to the pot, but like that does things, a community that does things. And I, um, You know, that requires reconfiguring the relationship that you have with, you know, it's kind of a bit of like a throwback to kind of earlier visions of like, what the interactive web would kind of look like, but I think it's powerful. I really do. And I, and I want to I want to explore that more in my future things. I just don't know exactly how to do it, you know, or when it will come back up in my career. You know, it's like a little bit difficult to do that just as a staff writer at the Atlantic, you know, um, minus a pandemic's like emergency, you know, procedures. But I, I, I would love to get a chance to do it again and and see
1: if we could. Something tells me there's going to be no, uh, dearth of, of grand challenges in this decade ahead. So <laughs> yeah. uh, with that sure. mindset, I'm sure you'll you know, bring that kind of entrepreneurial sense to something new, whether it's yeah. climate or another pandemic, uh, God <sighs> forbid, or God, something yeah. else. But um, I want to thank you. It's been amazing to be tiniest little part of this and I'm grateful for it. Oh, thank you, man. Next up, we feature a discussion that may shed light on the complications around COVID tracing apps. A global wave of experimentation and using smartphones to combat the spread of the novel coronavirus has stumbled over privacy concerns, security glitches, and slow program rollouts, leaving dozens of initiatives, including in the United States, with little evidence of success, it began an article in the Washington Post last year. To get a better sense of these issues, we're going to listen in to a panel discussion titled Privacy Impacts of Modern Contact Tracing for Future Pandemic Response that took place at the end of January during a day of discussion on privacy hosted by Santa Clara County. The Mercury News reported at the end of November that even during a surge in Santa Clara County, contact tracing staff consistently reported reaching 80% or more of cases and contacts within 24 hours of the positive test confirmation. So it's a good place to look for best practices. The moderator for this session is Deirdre Mulligan, a professor in the School of Information at UC Berkeley, and a faculty director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. The session includes Brandy Nanaki, director of the Citrus Policy Lab at UC Berkeley, Brian Hoffer, chair of the Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission, and Steve Penrod, VP of Product Development at Triple Blind. Here's Deirdre
3: when we're thinking about privacy, right, or security, people often have a threat model in their mind. And in the context of public health, there's both opportunities, right? We um, have this deep desire to support the health of the public. And, you know, that always, is requiring at least at the margin, some kept creating tensions as we seek to maintain public trust and public participation um, and encourage people to engage in these other regarding activities. And, you know, we've been dealing with uh, the, the deep Problem of public mistrust when we talk about things as simple as wearing a mask. And where those activities by design are aimed at protecting the best interests of the population, sometimes they require some proportional intrusions on the rights and interests of specific individuals. And so I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about kind of privacy threat models and the way in which you see them informing the design of the digital contact tracing technologies that we're looking at today. And I thought I would open with Steve.
4: I think um, this was a very unique opportunity, and you know, hopefully it remains unique in our lifetimes to analyze what happens when we're looking at something that is truly global. And as you said, the threat analysis, when you're dealing with something that is impacting, you know, the a massive population is significantly different when you're looking at a technology that's only being used within a, you know, within a small population, within your own home, within a, a, one business. And thinking about how these technologies um, could be used has to be considered with how they could be abused. And when you are literally tracing every person on the, in, on the planet, there are going to be people of interest to different parties. There is, as we all know, bad actors around the world, and we have to think about, put ourselves in the shoes of those bad actors and try to think, how can you make these things that are built for public good to be used for something besides that? At the core of the designs, you can then, when you put yourself in that mindset, you can then be certain that what you're recording and where you are recording and how it is being recorded, if that became available knowledge and assume that at some point it is going to be broken and it is going to become available, how could that be abused? And if so, how can you not record information um, so that it could be abused in those ways? And that was one of the things as we were building up designs for the path check application that we focused on is making sure we don't record things we do not need at times we don't need it
3: and steve could you talk a little bit about your process of design you know who is leading it and who is involved and why did that matter from your perspective
4: this was a, an interesting team that sprung up almost immediately and we had the advantage of my prior work, uh, the my company that I'm working with, Triple Blind, we are focused on how to perform and how to work with data in a deep way, but retain the privacy of it. So we had sort of a leg up on what we were attempting to do here. In conjunction with that work, we'd already been working with uh, the Mayo Clinic and with uh, Professor Ramesh Raskar at MIT. And that's really where all this sprung up is, you know, we had this the right group of people who had the right background and had already had their thoughts and their heads into these thoughts of how can you work with data with in ways and preserve the privacy while still extracting the information, the answers, or having a process that allows you to get the things you need out of it. So um, we really, um, you know, it started with just a couple of us basically in a room at MIT while we were working through this, um, figuring out. How can we design an architect and allow the data to flow in ways where there was not a centralized and that was a very big piece for us is coming up with a way to have decentralization which is a good way to protect privacy whenever there is one place with information that has problems potentially and you know there are times to centralize information but there are things that you we wanted to avoid and we inherently avoided by not storing those things in one database in one place.
3: So Brandy, I would love to hear your perspective. Um, Steve was just talking about a particular design choice. I know you've been looking at the emergence of contact tracing apps and other sorts of technology that's being used in the pandemic setting and I would love for you to talk a little bit about your perspective on some of the designs that you see emerging Um, And kind of both the limitations of those designs and the relevant policies that you view as kind of needing to partner with particular technical choices.
5: Great. Thank you for that. And it's so nice to join you, Brian, Steve, and Deirdre, thank you for organizing. Um, Mike Shapiro, when he opened up our panel, made a really excellent point that essentially we were building the plane while we're flying it. And if we're doing that, then we're, I think, prioritizing risk mitigation strategies rather than benefit optimization, right? We're just trying to survive day to day as we're building these out. And if we bring this also to the idea around appropriate governance mechanisms, you know, we've seen at the federal level that they introduced legislation specifically focused on data privacy for contact tracing in relation to COVID-19, which I, while it's noble, I think it's an inappropriate focus. Instead, what would be more appropriate, I think, is stronger data privacy legislation at the federal level that can help us better navigate how do we appropriately uh, operationalize principles of pr- privacy and security in a technical way into the tools that we're developing. So, I'm hopeful that from the experience that we've gone through um, during the COVID 19 pandemic, we'll better ensure that we have the appropriate governance mechanisms in place and technical strategies for the future pandemic.
3: So Brian, um, the Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission has played a really important role given some of the gaps at the federal level and even at the state level around privacy protection. And I'm wondering, you know, what can we learn from the work that OPAC does and for the surveillance ordinance for how we think about bringing technical products into government work?
0: Yeah, and thank you, Deirdre, and thank you, Santa Clarke. County uh, for having me here. What I haven't really seen, you know, domestically or or, uh, overseas is uh, a framework to really vet this, to get public input, to get community buy-in. And I think uh, trust is maybe even more critical in this context than the privacy impact of these apps. And what I like in Oakland, and it was actually pioneered in Santa Clara County, Supervisor Supervisors, uh, sponsored a surveillance technology framework uh, in June 2016. Uh, it requires an upfront analysis. You, you figure out these things before you go release this out into the wild, and you know, figure out that we didn't mitigate our risks, and then we lose more trust. It sets us on our back feet, and we've got to do you know an even harder job to get the community to maybe adopt an app or or to participate in these programs. When you were on the commission with us, uh, Deirdre, you saw, you know, we had a a pretty big variety of proposals. There might be one that's just solely limited to law enforcement, but we also had a number of private vendors coming to us for, you know, parking analytics and and homeless outreach and and other things. And so I think the model that we have in the greater Bay Area now is versatile enough. Uh, It creates a public forum, not only increased transparency, but to give the people a say. And I think the private sector could participate in that. It doesn't, you know, just to be government side, the private sector should be there or adopt this same model to allow the community to have some input into design and the guardrails that are put into place.
3: Yeah, so one of the things that I think um, unites the conversation that we're having here is this concern that um, governments are procuring technology that embeds many policy choices, right? What's our privacy threat model? What's our security analysis? How do we think about bias, which I know is an issue that's been very important both to the Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission as well. Brandy, I know in your work, thinking about the haves and haves nots and how the digital divide might actually contribute to a public health divide if we're not careful. One of the things that is super interesting about the innovations that have happened in the Bay Area that now Commissioner Simitian has a leading role in, is this use of impact assessments to create a forum for public participation, bring in different kinds of expertise, question things like the role of the private sector in determining technical infrastructure that's gonna be playing an incredibly important role in public life. Um, And I'm wondering, uh, Steve, from your perspective, it sounds like you didn't have a venue like that to go and vet the development of SafePath, which is now PathCheck, is that right? And I'm wondering like, if you had, how do you think it might've changed the way in which the app development process happened?
4: We were building as we go. And as a result, you know, I have previous experience in building um, open source communities. Mycroft was an open source voice assistant. Privacy was obviously a concern in that world and one of the best ways to expose yourself to scrutiny is to do things like open source and to have things one of the the uh, pieces that i believe helped PathCheck develop and grow from you know literally two people to thousands of people um, in the course of just a few weeks and months um, was that we opened ourselves up in not only our source code but in our communications tools so we built slack communities and had an open slack community and uh, have people joining from all forms of you know everything from government participants, to uh, research and education, to medical participation, to private individuals who just showed up, especially in this case where suddenly the world was frozen. There was a lot of talent that knew they could help. They just didn't know how to help or where they could help. And when they found something like this, that allowed them to jump in and whatever their particular Set of talents are whether they're security audits, whether it's you know UI and UX development to make it accessible to more people, or translation uh, so that you have it not only in one language but you have an application that can be used in dozens of languages, potentially every language in every location. The other piece that we really were also were aiming because we knew the the urgency of what we were facing as well as the challenge of what we were facing is building it so that it was not tied into one infrastructure, it was not tied into one organization, but building a piece of technology that could be repurposed and reused by different jurisdictions, different countries, different cities. Um, That was a very important key piece that um, I think was a differentiator and should be thought of when we're talking about emergency situations where you don't have time to do as much planning and we can do some pre-planning but we do need to figure out a way when facing you know by its nature something unanticipated how we can rapidly iterate in ways that are effective and ethical and as you said does not lose the trust of the the people you are serving um, as, as a public agency
3: Yeah, one of the, I think the really astounding and kind of hopeful things that we saw during the pandemic is people really rolling up their sleeves and jumping in. And, you know, we've seen uh, people developing open source medical supplies, masks and gowns and a real like um, investment by the maker community. And obviously even by large tech corporations uh, to try to figure out how they could assist And I think there are like both really positive elements to that and then I think it raises this question of like who's driving and who's setting policy and where that coordination is happening. Um, And Brandy, could you talk a little bit about what you view as kind of the strengths of the things that have arisen and some of the problems and and how you as somebody who's thinking about policy um, would like to see things change or carry forward.
5: Yeah, happily. So actually, I have a question that I'd like to pose to the other panelists off of this issue. Uh, Deirdre, you brought up the good point about governments are increasingly doing these kind of risk assessments when procuring technology. And I'm very curious if there has been a risk assessment methodology developed for these types of tools. And if There has been one developed, is it being implemented? What's the process by which uh, government entities are going through when they're evaluating these tools? And I'll just say that I I think for better, for maybe for worse, I think that there's this knee jerk reaction to turn to technology to save us during times of uncertainty. And I think that that is likely going to cause more harm than good. So I'm very curious how governments are implementing sort of a cost benefit analysis before adoption.
3: So I think, to like kind of veer into another, you know, controversial topic that touches on privacy and security. um, I think we've seen that in many instances, very similar to what we saw in kind of the use and adoption of contact tracing uh, in the adoption of facial recognition technology, right? Lack of coordination, lack of assessment, right? By governments in in a kind of thoughtful participatory way about the policy implications. Um, And a belief that like any marginal increase is going to be better without necessarily considering the cost to trust, the potential biases, et cetera. So I, I think at a meta level, there are communities that I think are doing this well. And I think, you know, we can look at Santa Clara and Oakland as places that are standing up infrastructure to do this sort of work in a detailed and meaningful way, but raising real questions um, about available expertise and budget and time, right? We're asking people to do, You know, most people haven't done a privacy impact assessment or a surveillance impact assessment. And we don't necessarily have um, a, a, a deep enough bench, I think. And I think this goes into some of the kind of renewed effort to build people with interdisciplinary backgrounds um, in, who are interested in kind of public interest technology and both on the build side and on the policy side can help us figure out um, how to do, do better as we go forward. But I think the kind of pause that we've seen on facial recognition is a bit of a wake up call about some of the real costs um, of not doing that thinking ahead of time, right? And so I think that the efforts at Santa Clara, the efforts in Oakland, Seattle and other places are really important because I think in many ways they're experimental. And then of course there is um, the requirement at the federal level for privacy impact assessments where federal government agencies are adopting technology. But we have this interesting thing where here, right, many public health interventions, they happen at the local level, they happen at the county level. And so the importance of this local infrastructure, I think becomes even more important. Um, and Brian or Stephen, would you like to jump in?
0: I'll just say um, that in the Bay Area, is very weird in like December and January to be getting, getting uh, calls from overseas asking for guidance. And I'm like, what, what is COVID? I don't even know what you're, talking about. And they're so used to the Bay Area and, you know, Oakland being a leader, Santa Clara, you know, the, the heart of Silicon Valley. And so I really appreciated, and the, there was a, a number of the folks on the front panel, uh, first panel, uh, Brian Ray reached out and said, hey, you know, do you think this could fit, uh, be vetted by your surveillance technology ordinances that you guys have in the Bay Area? And Aaron got involved and Mike and Deirdre jumped in at one point. And so we were going to try to craft, you know, basically like a case study, uh, uh, running the MIT app, I, I believe was the one we chose, uh, through our, our framework. And, you know, that's, that's still in process. It, we realize a is a very big project. Um, but I, I do think the Bay Area procurement ordinances, the technology vetting frameworks, uh, they work. Uh, they, they, they force you to ask the questions, uh, which, you know, we heard on, on the first panel, uh, to address those, to put your privacy uh, assessment together. Uh, and, and I think this is a model that could be, you know, replicated that would have prevented some of the harms we've seen in, you know, like the North Dakota rollout and so on. Uh, we wouldn't have had those, those oversights if we would have asked the questions in the first place.
4: Yeah, and I want to uh, kind of build on something that Brandy said. When people try to jump to technology as a solution for problems, um, you know, ultimately, it's very rare that that is the case. What technology is, is is a tool, and it's augmenting something that people are already doing, in particular in the digital contact tracing technologies that we developed. I you know, was literally interviewing contact tracers. What do you do? How do you do it? What information do you want to get? And it boils down to nothing that we created was unique. It was producing something that they were already doing in a way that's more that's faster, that's more accurate, that's less uh, error prone and that would help them do their jobs. And that's got to be, you know, when you have something that you're trying to build out, if you're trying to build a whole new way of doing something, you're gonna make mistakes. Um, But when you're augmenting something that already exists and when you're in an emergency situation, that's the sort of thing you can do that can help with technology. You know, trying to create from scratch something to solve an emergency that's never been done before Um, that's likely not going to work. And it's just going to be a waste of valuable resources during that kind of an emergency.
3: I wanna um, dig in a little bit on privacy threat models. And I think it's interesting, you know, um, privacy isn't about anonymity. I I know everyone here um, is aware of that, but rather as, you know, Helen Nissenbaum has really forcefully and compellingly argued about appropriate flows of data, right? Data is supposed to flow in a sphere of social life in a way that supports contextually appropriate activities. And as I mentioned earlier, right, public health always poses at the margin, at least some tensions, the best interests of the population, right, at sometimes require intrusions on the rights and interests of individuals and, there are some interesting lessons that I think we can look at um, in the history of kind of HIV contact tracing, which eventually became rena- renamed as partner notification. And then um, later on actually became kind of rebranded as partner counseling and referral services. And the importance there I think is that contact tracing was like an element of the the process that opened a door, right? Because when somebody was being notified that they might have been exposed, they were provided with counseling and testing services and treatment and linkages to medical care. And thus, you know, it nests the identification of risk of a health issue with information about services to ease the cost of taking protective measures, right? And if individuals are unaware of the resources that can assist them, right? The housing or food assistance, the job protection, the healthcare, the protections against discrimination, they're gonna be more uh, less likely to act in ways that are beneficial to them and to society, right? They may avoid testing, they're not gonna act on the information and the, the models that have really, I think, dominate right now um, really limit the availability of information to public health officials in ways that I think make it really difficult for them to kind of nest and provision all these other services that might be really important for people if we want them to engage in activities that are protective of the public's health. You know, I was just looking for some reflections, um, you know, that that model of government as risk is very much driven in a, you know, I think by a kind of tech sector, civil liberties, libertarian orientation. You know, I'm not sure that anonymity is always the right answer when we're thinking about public health interventions. And I'm you know, wondering what you thought um, about some of the particular costs of the way in which privacy is being modeled in many of these apps. And I guess I'll start with Brandy.
5: I think this is an excellent question and it harkens back to what we said at the beginning of the private sector sort of setting the standard of what is meant by privacy. I'm, I'm actually very interested to hear the practitioners like Steve, you know, Brian, you, you individuals who have worked on implementing these technologies. You know, what data do you think should be included in contact tracing apps? Um, do you feel like the data that's being collected now is appropriate for you to be able to you adequately address the spread and and engage in contact tracing efforts. Is there additional data that you think should be collected?
4: I think when you know when we were first looking at how to do this, how to you know augment what a contact tracer, a, a, a traditional contact tracer would do during that interview, we jumped to immediately GPS information because location was a key of who did you see. It, it boiled down to the location. Um, Pretty quickly, we also, uh, it evolved the idea of Bluetooth being a way of knowing proximity who is near you, um, without even necessarily knowing location. Um, There are situations where each has an advantage over the other um, because of technology limitations. You know, if you don't, if you're inside of a building where you can't see the GPS signal, then you get a reading, but it's not necessarily a correct reading. Or with Bluetooth, if you're, you know, just the other side of a wall, um, you may not get the Bluetooth signal of another phone, even though you're sharing the same air through the the uh, circulation. So, finding the right technologies and and having the right information recorded is important. As long as, and especially if you do your design so that you're recording as much information as possible in a distributed fashion where the individual what we designed specifically on the person's cell phone that's where all that information was stored and until it was needed it was never taken off of their cell phone and our real definition of need is exactly what would happen during a contact trace interview you're in a private conversation with that contact tracer you're aware of what's being shared with that contact tracer. You're made aware, you know, so that the individual is granting explicit permission to share information with that person. And it's not something that, you know, I think people fear that they are being surveilled by someone that they don't know. And that leads to the public trust issues uh, where people, when they are surprised, that's when they get defensive. And that's when they start thinking, what else might be going on that I'm not aware of? And so the more explicit and the more um, direct permission that you work with people without making it a burden, that helps build the trust, which helps allow us to put out systems that are going to help people.
0: Yeah, I, you know, and this gets back to, I think, your very first question, Deirdre, is how do you come up with a threat matrix for something that affects the entire world? all sectors of our economy and every single person you pass is a potential threat. Um, I, 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 this is a very hard question to answer right now for me because I haven't seen a complete package, uh, a, a proposal that that seems to be considering all the different components. Um, and I think the if, if I understood uh, your premise correctly, I think the biggest missing part is we're not involving the public in those decisions, uh, what their comfort level is, what types of data they might think. Um, certainly you need the subject matter expertise uh, to inform those decisions. And, and the private sector has got to tell you what's even possible uh, in the first place. But I'm um, you know, i I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that this type of technology could, can work. I, I don't think manual tracing can keep up with something that's uh, so infectious. Uh, but I I don't see um, a, a lot of effort being made to get uh, the public trust and the public input, and so uh, I think part of your your earlier question is, uh, or, or you you know your statement was that you know the, we're seeing the government as the threat in, in our threat models, and well, there's very legitimate reasons why, and we're not doing uh, what I haven't seen like anybody really taking concrete steps. Uh, to mitigate that. And, and I, I'm very pleasantly surprised um, and impressed that the private sector is really looking at the privacy aspect. But to me, that's, the, that's just a, a more minor concern here, uh, which is strange as a privacy activist to say, uh, but without trust, I don't see this proposal working at all. Um, and that's the part we've got to fix.
5: If I could push on Brian's comment here, I actually wanna ask you a question about, well, what do you think government should be doing to build trust? What actions should they be taking in light of what we have learned during the COVID-19 pandemic?
0: I think a public forum, uh, a public you know, feedback uh, is necessary. And that's what's been great about having the Privacy Commission in Oakland. Uh, San Diego's gonna follow us here very soon. They're just waiting on the second uh, required vote for their ordinance uh oakland is toxic Uh, there's a lot of distrust our our police department's been under federal oversight for 18 years but when the privacy commission blesses something it it, people calm down it it takes away that suspicion people know that we've vetted it properly Uh, you know we don't miss things uh, that are going to have a big negative impact later and so i think the government should be going out with the private sector um and, and and you know whether it's a, a, a workshop, a Zoom panel, I guess will probably be limited, you know, during COVID, but you gotta start talking to the public. There is a large um and not just the you know the fake news Trump people, there is a large uh sector of the of of the community that um you know does not want to adopt these apps and does not trust that we're gonna handle the data responsibly. I think informed consent has been another missing piece. We knew there was only going to be a matter of time until law enforcement started seeking the data and we've seen reports of that. Uh, And and so those types of discussions, I'm just not seeing them happen.
3: So Brian, that brings us kind of back to kind of the threat model question. And a lot of the, you know, if we place them, I think about my own data, right? Um, Not contact tracing data, other data is it safer locally on my computer? Is it safer in the cloud? What are the risks I'm concerned about, right? Um, My capacity to secure my machine is not equivalent um, with any of the cloud vendors' abilities to secure their data centers. Of course, I'm assuming, hoping my machine feels like a less meaty target. And so perhaps there aren't the millions of attackers coming after my machine every day, although not really sure because I don't go through my logs. Um, But when I'm thinking about like privacy risks, if my concern is with my employer demanding to see whether or not I've received a notification or I'm concerned with my housemate, telling me I need to install it and they wanna be able to see if I've been notified um, or we're concerned about law enforcement demands for these information. These are not things that the technology companies can address, right? And so I'm wondering if we could talk, you know, some of the issues that I think Brian, you were highlighting are things that, um, require government action, right? We can't just say, oh, let's, let's leave that to corporate policies about, you know, how data is used. And we've seen, you know, the EEOC, um, OSHA, you know, there have been some guidance put out about contact tracing apps, but they are very deferential to kind of have rules in place, right? They're in, in in the private sector. They're not kind of setting, the rules themselves, and so I'm Brandy, I'm, I'm you know, would love to hear you a little bit, and and Brian a little bit about um, what rules do you think we need in place to make an environment where people do trust, where people do want to use technology, masks, right? And the public health interventions that we um, know from the experts are going to advance our collective interests.
5: Yeah, this is really good question. I think, especially around contact tracing apps and the data collection, we need stronger rules on data privacy considerations. Of course, we have the California Consumer Privacy Act, which has set some of those guidelines, you know, around data minimization, uh, collecting data for specific purposes, consent, user consent to the collection of that data. So I think that's a very promising step. I'm hesitant to think that we need specific rules just for contact tracing or for pandemic technologies. Instead, I think it you know it's more sound to have uh, rules in place that can govern different applications of technology. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done moving forward. Um, but I also think part of that work is ensuring that we have a robust discussion with the public on what their concerns are. I, I think sometimes that there is yeah, privacy issues are overblown um, that, you know, everybody wants to just say, let's, let's make sure everything's private. Well, does it really, does, does all the data need to be private? Where do we draw the line of what's appropriate data collection and sharing and actually puts communities at risk versus just an over-encompassing view of everything should be private? So I think this has really revealed that we need to have more of these discussions to inform appropriate oversight
4: trying to create, you know, the perfect policy, trying to create the perfect um, set of rules and limitations, uh, you're going to end up either limiting to where you can't achieve anything at all, or um, more likely, you're going to miss the mark. And you don't think about some, some human behavior, some human social thing that occurs Based off of what you you know created when you first created that policy, so I think again, trying to come up with ways where we can iterate. Um, you know, the private industry, private sector, has adopted agile methodologies because iteration comes up with a better thing than you know the waterfall approach of planning everything first and then just executing your plan. It rarely works out. You've got to take every step and evaluate as you go through those steps and adjust your plan as you go. And that requires iteration, which is sort of tricky when you are talking about uh, you know, areas that are governed by laws. And once you've placed a law, that is sort of a hard line. You don't get to cross again until a, a very painful process. So how are we able to establish policies and procedures that are flexible enough that we can do iterative approaches to these um, things as we're developing new novel technology.
0: Yeah, and I I like both of those comments, Um, and I I think I do agree, uh, like with what Brandy was saying, we don't necessarily need new new, uh, or specific, you know, COVID laws. We do need stronger data protection laws. I don't think, um, you know, Partly, I think Steve was sort of making a, or, or raising a concern about just anti, maybe not anti-innovation, but just, you know, the the slowness of, of government bureaucracy. Um, you know, I don't know that we necessarily need a top-down federal uh, one-size-fits-all policy. It would be nice to have federal leadership on this issue for once, but uh, I don't know that we need a one-size-fits-all policy. But. I do think our existing uh, Bay Area model, you know, the impact analysis is accompanied by a proposed use policy. That's where we set the rules in place, it's at the same time. The impact analysis should be informing your rulemaking and you have that public conversation at the same time so that there's some public input and hopefully, you know, buy-in. That gets back to the trust part. Uh, I do want the government in the driver's seat. uh, just despite my last six years of activism fighting, you know, state power uh, or the abuse of state power, and my concerns, uh, you know, about law enforcement, uh, at least we have oversight. We have transparency. We can hold people accountable. And and so I think if we let the private sector drive this and just say, well, maybe look at our model, but you guys just take it. Uh, I think we lose maybe the accountability component. And that is important when we see data breaches Uh, and and to get trust. People have to know that we can hold the people, uh, you know, the folks responsible, accountable. And that's a lot easier to do on the government side than the private side. And most of what I've seen to date, you know, the apps would be running through a public health authority. Um, I I think that would give people a little bit more sense of trust than a a for-profit corporation. Operation, you know, maybe holding this decentralized data. Um, but I, I would hope in, in under either scenario that there's uh, close collaboration between the public and private sides.
4: Yeah, I'd like to toss in on that, too, that um, I think one of the hindrances to the early days of the COVID response was the fear of liability. Um, you know, technology organizations we're looking at their potential liability and building something global, um, and so that resulted in pulling back from certain things. And I think it's especially tricky when you are talking about really, you know, multi-jurisdictional at at, at all levels—not only counties, cities, states, you know, nation, nations. In that case, and really, where does the liability lie when you're talking about something, even if it is located in your county as a as a company? How do you deal with um, giving them you know, permission to develop something under the appropriate oversight without them taking on fear that they're about to you know, create a billion-dollar lawsuit? Had there been some form of protection, you know, framework that that had existed, I think it would have assisted us in launching these this sort of technology faster and developing these sorts of things faster um, and being able to even do small examples of research at a county or a city or even you know a university level is very difficult to do right now because of as a private company it had they worry about shareholder and um, and liability concerns without government um, guidance and systems in place which I don't think they even exist even at this stage this is going to be an ongoing problem. And that's the sort of thing that you can look forward and you can prepare for, even if you don't know what it's going to be, you can help those frameworks by creating those frameworks.
5: I just wanna jump into, thank you, Steve and Brian. I think that one, one lever that can be pulled is around procurement, government procurement and setting guidelines for considerations before technology can be procured. And I think that the work being done in Oakland around risk assessment, privacy assessment, this should be built into the procurement process you know are the companies taking the appropriate steps in alignment with our risk assessment framework to mitigate those risks and i'm curious if that has been developed into your procurement process like how are you tying together the you know surveillance privacy assessment with procurement
0: it's all interlinked basically the uh the the first sentence of this model ordinance is city staff shall not go acquire xyz technology without city council or governing body approval so you don't get to go get it until you come through our our process and and that's where i hope we can get you know and, and it's i mean this is all over the country now i think there's about 20 when you consider what's in California and outside California, uh, but you you bring that proposal to us. You, you've got your analysis. It's going to inform the the policy, the the rule setting, and and uh, ideally we're going to mitigate all those risks up front because we have that informed discussion. And it's a blend of subject matter expertise. You know, we had people like Deirdre to, to guide us, uh, but also the public. You know, they want they want they deserve a bite at the apple. Uh, the transparency leads to Greater trust, uh, and then you know, under our, under our existing Bay Area models, we also have a an annual reporting requirement, um, which I do think you know, reporting is something. Um, in this context is going to be critical, partly just the speed, Uh, you know, all these different uh, virus variations we're seeing, just the changing, you know, hospital capacity numbers, all this stuff. There's a lot of data constantly coming at us that, uh, you know, may inform a policy change. And so we need to be quick and, uh, and adaptable to that as well.
3: Whether you know we're, we're talking about exposure notification apps, I think they were framed on the first panel as a new tool to aid contact tracing rather than a displacement technology, which I think you know our, our conversation is as framed as like the right framing. It's always important to think about the way in which a new way of doing something, however, the function right is being redistributed. And there we see there are now people who used to maybe be the people on the front line asking the questions and getting access to certain kinds of information, no longer getting that information, the public health officials. Um, but we also see new people potentially getting access to information, right? So to the extent that employers begin requiring people to have apps and to use them. And to provide information about whether or not, for example, they've been notified um, that they've been exposed. We all of a sudden have these new entities, right? We have employers who might all of a sudden, are they the new contact tracers? Are we like, how does this intervention kind of shift who has information? And how does that shift kind of the distribution of responsibility for protecting the public health? I think moving
5: forward as we think through how we design and deploy these technologies, that thinking through who should be doing this, who should be setting the rules, what are the appropriate methodologies for setting those rules, who needs to be involved. And I, you know, again, I keep like showing and saying, Oakland, I think you guys are doing an excellent job of doing these risk assessments
3: and having community input. This should be adopted in more jurisdictions. It's almost time for us to wrap up. Um, I kinda wanna give a shout out to all of you um, in the Bay Area in particular, which is often viewed as kind of the hotbed of technical innovation. But I think we have really learned from this uh, panel that it is also a hotbed of kind of policy innovation around the responsible use of technology. And I think it's really important. Um, The policy is often kind of latent and opaque and right the the enabling role it plays in ensuring that we can use technology in ways that are meaningful and useful, particularly when we're dealing with something as immense as a a worldwide public health crisis. Um, Policy isn't a barrier, right? Policy is a way in which we enable Um, We enable the public to trust. We enable us to use technology and mitigate the downsides. We can enable technology in a way that is useful and fair and inclusive um, rather than in ways that perpetuate systemic bias. And technology and the private sector can't do those things on their own. And so I just want to thank all of you for kind of contributing to the advancements of how we think about um, building technology in a way that serves society.
1: That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, And thank you for listening, Tech Policy Press.